0: Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Brendan Kilcoyne, coming to you from Rye, County, Galway, in another episode of the Brendan Option. Nearly there now, almost at the end of Advent, fourth Sunday of Advent, Gaudete Sunday over, facing into the feast in the most extraordinary circumstances, although I suspect the light of Christmas is going to shine all the brighter in the darkness of the whole COVID business. Didn't Cavanagh say in his poem, Advent, through a chink too wide, there comes in no wonder? Maybe it takes a bit of restraint, a bit of frustration, a bit of difficulty for us to really appreciate God's goodness and and appreciate the faith. I'm very struck by the Gospel today, that one from chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel. That's well known, the angelic salutation, the angelic message, the Annunciation. And I'm inclined to, don't laugh because it seems so incongruous, but it put me in mind of all Bismarck. You know, Bismarck, the founder of the German Empire, the great helmsman of the German Empire, the, the uh, before that of Prussia, great statesman, minister, genuinely gifted man, bit cynical. Bismarck famously described politics as, and I quote, the art of the possible. He went on to say it was the art of the attainable, I think he said, of the art of the next best thing. The art of the possible. It's often quoted. That's often quoted. It's a great thought. It's a great articulation of the problem of politics. I think Winston Churchill described democracy as always the second best solution, which is really a reworking of perhaps Bismarck's dictum to some extent. The art of the possible. Well, the first chapter of Luke, and particularly the Annunciation as Newman said in a different context A different theological context The nature of the church This then is the church ye men of the world And now ye know her Because the politics of heaven The politics of the church When the church is at its best And the church is not always at its best Do I need to say that? But the, the politics of the church at its best The politics of heaven Is the art of the impossible Quotation marks around impossible uh, Chesterton is a tremendous source of quotations On all of this brilliant man who had the capacity to engage in what the French called high vul- vulgarisation. He could take very complex ideas and express them in a pithy, accessible, limpidly clear aphorism or dictum. You know, He was just gifted at it. But Chesterton noted the way in which politics believe in omnipotence when they're in opposition. In opposition, everything is possible and why isn't the government doing it? Everything is possible. Once they get into power, their great belief in human mortal limitation. Nothing is possible, or certainly nothing they don't want to do. Now, there's wisdom on both sides. The great frustration of opposition is you see what could be done. The great frustration of being in power is that you see what can't be done. You're all too aware of how little can be done. Pope Benedict talking to somebody who expressed surprise he hadn't dealt more firmly with a certain problem. It was a theological issue, issue of orthodoxy, I think. But he's supposed to have pointed to the door of the papal office and said, my authority stops there, which isn't, of course, entirely true. But it's, again, a good way of pointing out the limitations of human power. Sacred power is a different matter. And sacred power is what we're talking about here. And now we can talk about sacred power because really it's all that's left to the church. The church for so long got used to having worldly power. And I think the church, it developed in power a clerkish cuteness, an ability to spend ages saying very little, an ability to endlessly calculate. And signs are by, really, in Ireland. We have proved ourselves so far Largely unequal or absolutely catastrophic worldless situation. Catastrophic in practical terms. And actually we're we're in a catastrophic spiritual situation as well. But there are answers to that. There are answers. there, There is one powerful answer to that. And the answer to that is Jesus Christ. But it appalls the church. This has happened on an intermittent basis in the history of the church. Almost a cyclical basis where the church is thrown back on Christ because she is nothing else and she is appalled at her situation. It's deeply ironic. We don't thank God for throwing us back on him, although we're great at, at flattering him in, in the words of the Monty Python character played by John Cleese, uh, dreadful sucking up. We're great at, at mechanically rehearsing all of those things and yet we are appalled when we are thrown back on nothing but providence we are at best crypto pelagians we're always trying to build the kingdom ourselves we don't trust god i don't think it's that we don't believe in him it's, not, it's much harder i've said this before it's much harder than we think to give up belief in god although you can i don't think it's that we've stopped believing in him i don't think it's that we that would be very attractive very confrontational, very sensational thing to say that the church is full of atheists. I I don't think it's so much that the church is full of atheists. The church is full of believers who are at best afraid of God and at worst despise him and distrust him. It's not that we don't love him at all, but we treat him with the embarrassed abruptness with which I remember old people being treated in the house years ago. We had no language for our love and we were tired of looking after them. We have reduced God to an old biddy sitting in the corner. A friend of mine lately, it's little wonder that we've we've so little trust in God, in his ability to save us. A friend of mine lately made, I thought, an extremely astute comment. I don't want listeners to be offended by this. I think there's a lot of wisdom in it. He commented on how no matter what the priest tries, and only some priests will try, no matter, matter what the priest tries, adoration chapels always end up looking like an elderly woman's parlor. It was a very interesting comment. Irish Catholics nowadays, they want churches to be comfy. They want churches to be comfortable. We have this abundance of carpet in Irish churches. They want round edges and soft textures. They want everything to be comfy. We are acquiescing tacitly in the death of the church. That's what we're doing. Everybody in the house knows that the old man or the old woman is going to die and we're surrounding them with comfort. I think we have God sitting in a chair and we're quite happy with him as long as we can feed him complan with a spoon. But actually being thrown back on him appalls us because we don't trust him and we we don't trust his ability to save us. It's the strangest heresy. It's not one that's thought out, but it's there in Luke chapter 1. We are flung unceremoniously on the mercy of our apparently ailing and elderly God. Because we've stopped believing that he loves us. We've stopped believing that he will intervene. We've half stopped believing that he has intervened. And so a lot of people will have problems with the virgin birth. They have no problem with the existence of God, but they have problems with the virgin birth. Simply because God exists doesn't mean he has caused the virgin birth. But to believe in God and find the virgin birth ridiculous is lazy, inconsistent, verging on stupid. You may believe in God and not believe in the virgin birth. You may have all sorts of reasons for that. But finding it ridiculous when you already believe in God is simply ridiculous itself. It's the pot calling the kettle black, if that's not a racist comment at this stage. And the reason I'm talking about this is that we should be masters of the art of the impossible. That's the trade we're called to, not the possible. These are the politics of heaven. But we're no good at the politics of heaven. And the politics of earth have turned against us. So we're not much good at that either. We really would be better to get back to our original trade and stick to it for a while. The art of the impossible. And so you have church members, as I said, they believe in God, but have difficulty with the virgin birth. And and, and this is another thing. Jesus, you know, son of God, I don't know. They believe in God, but they can't believe that he would beget a son. I would have thought that God can do anything if God is omnipotent and omniscient. But they seem to believe in a God who's in power and who's very limited in what he can do as opposed to opposition. But in God, opposition and government are united. All contraries are united in God. The lion will lie down with the lamb, the swords hammered into plowshares. All possibility becomes actuality in God. God can do as he wishes, as he sees fit. God has no time, he has no age. He assumed age in Jesus Christ. He assumed it in that one life. But God is beyond all time. You can do what some of the church is tacitly doing. You can decide to lie down and die. I I believe some of the religious orders have, have ingeniously rationalized it by saying, oh, our work is done. We have nothing more to do. There's no point in looking for novices. There's no point in going back to bathe in the wellsprings of the charism again. I I know orders like this. I know orders like this. They've decided to die. They want to die. It's not that they don't believe in God. I used to think it was they'd given up their faith in God. But people aren't that simple. And, And people are far more ingenious than that without even knowing that they're ingenious. They quite possibly still believe... But they just don't trust him. They don't believe anymore that he'll do anything for them. They have a vague belief in heaven. I mean, this is verging on heresy and blasphemy. And because of that, once you go into the sacred liturgy, with that mind unreconciled, unrepent, unconfessed, unrepented, you're also talking about sacrilege. That is the state of the church. It's not the whole state of the church. But it's not a bad description of a fairly sizable section of it. The church is gradually becoming desert. The desert is reclaiming the church. Now that never goes away even at the church's height. It's as the farmers say about land that's been reclaimed from the bog. The heather never leaves the ditches and the maring drains. Mearing drains being the boundary drains. It's always there. Neglect the land for a few years and it starts to appear again in the field. The bog will come back. The desert, so to speak, will come back. The church is becoming a desert. Becoming a desert. I cannot emphasise too strongly the importance. I feel like a cracked record. I really do, saying this. And I'm not patronising. I just feel silly. But I'm a one-trick pony. I know one tune on the drums. I have one tune to play. I really am going to knock value out of that. We must accept where we are. We are in an appalling place. We are at the mercy of God. We, who spend so long constructing a vast, in Shakespeare's term, vast and substantial pageant. And that is now fading. Our revels now have ended. The 200 years of the great rising of the Catholic Church from the ashes of the penal times. It's flowering and it's declining. We are now in its last days. And it's not pretty to look at. It is not God who is elderly. It is we who are elderly. As This incarnation of the church on earth, this present generation. We're old, we're tired, we're failing. Not God. That's purely projection. We're projecting ourselves onto Him. He is still potent, omnipotent. He can do mighty deeds. We feel ourselves beyond mighty deeds but the secret of our survival and the secret of our handing on something to the next generation will be our having the humility which for the thousandth time is not crawling and endless self-flagellation. Humility is reality. It is a sense of reality. We are at the mercy of God but God is merciful. We can only be helped by God but God is powerful. We must learn again in Sadness and disgrace, we must learn to trust God. That is the great sin of the Irish church at the moment. We don't trust God. We don't trust Him. I think we still have enough bottle to step out of the boat, like Peter, but we won't even manage a few steps, unlike Peter. We'll sink like a stone. It's not simply, I can go on forever about a loss of faith. It's not a loss of faith. It is to an extent a loss of faith, it is a malady of faith. It's a malady of faith, but it's not inexistent. The faith is there. It's sick, but it's there. But that element of faith, which is trust, that faith in action, it's a faith that's too weak now to to trust. We don't trust God. And we're appalled to find that he's the only card in our hand. But this is the time that makes sense. This is the time that makes sense, I'm telling you. If only we have the wit to see it, the divine wit, the holy holy wisdom to see it. This chapter of Luke announces the politics of the kingdom. The politics, it is the art of the impossible. It is buildings constructed in fresh air. It is in the words of Hebrews, talk speaking of Abraham, I think it's in chapter 11, that he looked forward to the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Its foundations are in thin air. Its foundations are in God. Invisible to the naked eye, to the human eye. That is a terrifying way to build. To build not on ground, but out in the ravine, not on the ledges. This is what we're called to know. This is what we're called to accept. Chesterton has this beautiful, I think it's in The Everlasting Man, he has this beautiful description of the holiness of Our Lady uh, at this point and later where he's he, he's speaking to people who have deep suspicions of Catholic mariolatry as they see it. And he talks about Our Lady and the child Jesus together in the in the holy pictures. Those holy heads are too near together for the halos not to mingle and cross. In a way you have to look at Our Lady to fully understand Our Lord. He's never without her. He's never without her. The halos mingle and cross. I'm looking as I speak at a statue of Our Lady that I have on my mantelpiece, holding the child Jesus in her lap. It's an imitation. I I, I love this stuff. If you ever come across statues produced by the Monastère de Bethlehem, I think it's a French convent, and they produce the loveliest reproduction Romanesque statues. None of them are very big. I got the affordable one in dolomite, which is a sort of marble dust mixed with resin. It's very heavy and solid and hand-painted. It's a lovely reproduction of a Romanesque statue of Our Our Lady sitting on the throne, holding in her right hand the orb, topped to the cross, and in her left hand on the shoulder of the child Jesus, who's in her lap, and his two fingers raised in benediction. Uh, He's wearing a crown on his head, as is she. It's like the Dauphin, the prince and the, the king mother. It's the loveliest uh, depiction of what I'm talking about. The halos mix. You see in Our Lady the, poly, the art of the possible becoming the art of the impossible. You see the mixture of heaven and earth cross over. In some ways, I know I'm verging, you may think I'm verging on the heretical, but in some ways you see it more clearly looking at her than in him. That's the genius of the church, which has been given to the church by the Holy Spirit, breathed into it by the Holy Spirit, is that we're given these steps through the saints, through Our Lady, by which we can grasp the mystery that is Christ. Think of Knock; She's there to one side. Knock is not a Marian apparition. It's called a Marian shrine. It's not primarily a Marian shrine. It's a Eucharistic shrine. The centre of the vision was the Lamb on the altar. But she is to one side with her hands in the Oran's position, held by the priest at mass, the hands raised up to heaven. She's there to one side, flanked by St. Joseph and St. John. The art of the impossible, a God who not only wills to save, but has the power to save, who joins himself to us in Christ, through her, the mediatrix of all graces. Now here I want to sound, yet again, a warning against this a la carte Catholicism. You know, I've, I've alluded to it already. Oh well, you know, I believe in God, but I'm not sure that Jesus was the Son of God. You hear this inside the church, inside the church. I think he was just a good man. Look, I, I, I bring you back to Aquinas, out deus, out malus homo. This Jesus of Nazareth, he's either God or he's a bad man. He's either God or he's a bad man, or a madman. So it just won't wash You're going to have to make a call on this You're going to have to make a decision on it I say this with the greatest respect He is not just a good man Now you may think that it's absolutely ridiculous That Jesus would be the son of God It's absolutely ridiculous that you believe in God And don't believe that he can do anything That doesn't mean you have to believe Jesus is the son of God The Muslims don't But finding it ridiculous is a bit rich You've already swallowed the camel Now you're straining at the gnat Come on You've got bigger problems than that if you're talking like that. You have a problem with God as well. And then, oh, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus was the Son of God, but I don't believe he did the miracles. What sort of a lachico are you? What sort of nonsense is that? You may believe, certainly, in God. You may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You may believe that Jesus is the Son of God on earth and still not believe in the miracles, but only because you believe that he did not choose to do them. Not because he could not do them, which is Ridiculous. It is ridiculous to find that ridiculous. It's not ridiculous not to believe in it for other reasons. Well, the scriptures are clear enough. And then, oh, I believe, I believe in that. I believe in the miracles. But here's the, here's the kick. And here's where, here's where we really see where the Irish church is. I don't believe in modern miracles. Oh, wow. God really is in the calyach. You know, that was the little corner. Uh, often built out in, as a, you could see it on the outside as an extension of the kitchen. On the old Irish thatched cottages. The calyach is the old hag. That was where granny was put when she was old. It was a bed recessed into the wall where she could be beside the fire. It was separated from the kitchen by a curtain. It was a really cosy affair. The calyach. So God is in the bed. Give the woman in the bed more porter. Honest to goodness. Can you not see what you're at? It may indeed be possible to believe in God. Believe in Jesus believe in the miracles, and not believe that there are modern miracles. You could make a lively theological argument for that, although I don't think it would hold up. You could do that. But for goodness sake, you can't be a Catholic and do that, because to be a Catholic means that God is alive and active. The Spirit is moving in the church. The whole time. There are saints the whole time. We've just beatified a slew of them. Listen to this. I've mentioned them before. The beatification of Carlo Acutis... Joining, there's at least one other, his name escapes me, one other young modern Italian Beatus and there are a slew of them coming in Italy. Not in Ireland, I need hardly point out. But in Italy, there are saints arising. And there are rumors of saints in many of the other uh, nation, national churches. I say national churches, we're all the Catholic Church. Of course, I'm not being a Gallican. We're all the Catholic churches, but Catholic Church, but I mean when I say national church, I mean, you know, the Catholic Church incarnates itself locally, and those local churches have their own particular flavor, their own twang, their own accent, if you like. Same language, different accent. But not in Ireland, but they're coming out. Carlo Acutis is likely to be, he's almost certainly going to be canonised. And he'd be the patron saint of the, the internet. He was an internet whiz. He had a tremendous gift for computers. And he converted his own parents at a young age. And was a source of conversion for many others. So I think the French bishop who described the French church, uh, the modern French church, as a desert dotted with spring wells, has just put it perfectly. And now the Irish church, in fairness, there are some springs bubbling up in the desert. There are. And it's rapidly becoming a desert. But there are springs. And I'll tell you something else. The young Catholics in Ireland, of whom there are a small number, there are only a few thousand really, the young Catholics in Ireland talk openly and freely of becoming saints. They talk of it in the same way as others talk of mastering a trade, rising in their profession, becoming soccer players, cowboys, running a hamster farm, whatever whatever crazy ambition you may have, they achieve that talk of the politics of the impossible in worldly terms. And that brings them right back to the early centuries of the church and it brings them right back to the early centuries of the Irish church and to the golden age of Irish monasticism when the ambition of gifted young people was to do incredible things for God. Échthi, as it says in in Gaelic. It's very onomatopoeic. Échthi, mighty deeds almost divine deeds, the mixture of heaven and earth, the interpenetration of the halos, the doing of mighty deeds, heavenly deeds on earth. And those things are whispering again. We're not beaten yet. We never will be. But we are beaten into the clay, in Yeats's phrase. Beaten into the clay. Now Yeats's full phrase there was, beaten into the clay through seven heroic centuries. Now, the heroic centuries begin for the Irish church. They can only begin when you are beaten into the clay, when your worldly plans have all gone awry, when all you have to depend on is your despised elderly God, who is not what you think, because there's life in grandi yet. And what do we have for this? We have the sacred scriptures, we have the living tradition of the church, and we have the magisterium of the church. And I think it is high time that some people get over themselves about magisterium, about the teaching authority of the church. Because for years after the council, in a way that was, it is almost blasphemy to attribute this to the council. But in the years after the council, one of the great heretical movements within the church was contempt for the magisterium, which is the teaching authority of the church. Now, you can talk all you want. This never stops raising its head. You can talk all you want of students learning from each other. I know I learned more in the canteen than I learned in the lecture hall. Cooperative learning, students learning from each other. Students only learn from each other, so to speak, when they're guided by a teacher. Even in cooperative learning, which is an extremely involved and laboured attempt, really, to make an ideology come alive in the classroom. The teacher actually is still essential as the one who sets the stage, supervises and provides the essential new knowledge. There is no learning without a teacher. One way or another you will have teachers. People who think that they learned without teachers simply don't give the title to the ones who taught them. But they were taught by teachers. If you left school at 15 you still had teachers long into your 20s. And somebody who really knows how to live will find new teachers all his or her life, even as he or she has become a teacher in their own right. You're always learning. New men wrote beautifully about this, about the electric charge, the moment of the meeting between teachers. And Giussani, the founder of Communion and Liberation, the great university, Catholic movement in Italy, Don Giussani, he writes about the event of the meeting between the apostle and the one to receive the faith the event of the meeting between teacher and pupil. There is nothing oppressive necessarily about a teacher. A teacher is a liberator. A good teacher is a liberator who introduces his or her pupils to the world of knowledge. And knowledge, ultimately, for the Catholic school, for the Catholic teacher, knowledge is the knowledge of God. And it is inseparable from holy wisdom. This is heady stuff, this is strong stuff. I mean, we've lost our nerve. We've lost our head for heights. We've lost our ability to do crazy stuff, you know? And if you want to look at this, you can see this failure of nerve much earlier. It's one thing you notice in the west of Ireland is the number of, of 19th century and early 20th century churches that have unfinished spires. It's very interesting because the spire is the most ridiculous, the most useless part of the building. I know you can put bells in it, but the bells cost a fortune. I mean, most spires that were built didn't get bells that were, you know, of such a quality as to merit the building of the spire. And yet we're still building spires. You see the spire that was built in the middle of O'Connell Street. There's something in the human nature that wants to reach to the beyond. And the most useless part of the church is, in a sense, the most useful in the politics of the impossible. But even as we ascend it in the 19th century... There was that lack of trust in God. We built these mighty buildings and yet failed to build the towers. How Jesus must have laughed. I can name them off to you. My own parish in Duisburg and County Mayo. Beautiful stone church built after the famine. The base of the spire is there, just roofed over with a flat roof. Clare Morris Church, if I'm not mistaken, Castle Bar Church, Ballyhaunas, although they finished their spire about 20 years ago, finally. But that was, I don't know how long in the meantime. It was certainly 60 or 70 years without a spire, and so on. Look, I just throw it out to you as a very, I think, an interesting image. The loss of nerve. Building a spire on a church. Actually, The church in itself, in fairness, is a tremendous act of faith because it is a useless building in worldly terms. When you hear people start to say, oh, I go to church to meet people, you know that things have gone wrong. You go to church for something that should appear absolutely useless to the world. That's where you have begun to meet God. That's where the halos have begun to mix. And the spire, if you like, or tower or whatever, is in one way... The most useful part of a useless building. Because it's the most useless part of a useless building. It is the most spiritually useful part of a spiritually useful building. The church is that useless, that terrible place, built in the middle of fresh air, whose foundations is God and the spire reaching into the beyond. Impossible. We have to fall back on God. We have to become drunk on God. Now we're, we certainly, one thing the Irish haven't forgotten how to do is to become drunk, but we have forgotten how to be intoxicated by God. We don't have the nerve anymore to hold our spiritual drink. We're not fit for it. We can't take more than a few gulps without throwing up. Some of you may find it objectionable and gross, but I think it's not a bad image for the state of the Irish church at the moment. We cannot hold our drink for a nation that famously, could drink, for better or worse. I'm not glorifying alcohol, but we certainly aren't up to it anymore in spiritual terms. We're afraid of God, and we have tacitly, collectively watered him down so much that it couldn't make a flea drunk. Cooperative learning, learning from each other. My old professor, Patrick Corish, the Lord of mercy and history professor, he used to comment dryly on it, that he never heard of anything good coming of collective ignorance. We need teachers, and our greatest teacher is Christ, and he has left us the church, and the church teaches in his name. That is our mainstay. That is our connection to the Saviour, our connection That the impossible thing, which is the survival of the church, which doesn't in worldly terms deserve to survive and shouldn't survive. As Hilaire Belloc once said, any institution conducted for any length of time with such knavish imbecility, if it were mortal, would certainly have failed. It must be of divine origin. And the church, a desert still full of wells and producing miracles. We're coming near Christmas. Christmas. I want you to consider the revolution of the impossible. I want you to consider becoming an agent of the secret state of nowhere that is the kingdom of God. I want you to open the door of the wardrobe, as Lewis would have said, and step into it. I want you to let the halos mix. I want you to feel the presence of the kingdom on earth, of the impossible strolling and moving and speaking among the possible of the blends and reconciliation of opposition and government, of impotence and power. God has done the impossible because nothing is impossible to him. Possible is only our talk, our sad, frustrated blather. The impossible is here on earth. This Christmas we will celebrate the union of heaven and earth in the incarnation. We will celebrate And we should celebrate with a good meal and good cheer and gifts to friends. We should celebrate our being apprenticed to the art of the impossible. Let us take to drinking deeply in this one pub that will certainly be open. And let us set like madmen to building spires. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.